Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. We're just that simple church. We are just preaching, praying, hearing, singing, and fellowshipping in the Word of God. It's a good day to be joyful, happy, we are in the Christian's joy. I know your Bibles are open to Philippians 1. You know, during the initial construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, does everybody know where the Golden Gate Bridge is? San Francisco uh, area? The construction started way back in 1933, and it was the longest suspension bridge in the world built at that time. Get this, no safety devices were used... And as a result, 23 men fell to their deaths. Now, for the final part of the project, they got a clue, and a large net was put together as a safety precaution, and at least 10 men fell into that, but they, as a result of that, they were saved from certain death. Even more interesting than that is the fact that 25% more work was done after the net was installed. Why do you think that is? I think because the men had the assurance of safety. They were free to work, wholeheartedly serve the project. And I'm here to tell you today, God's made a safety net for you and me so we could do the work he's called us to do. That safety net is the assurance of salvation and sanctification. That assurance of eternal security also is going to bring joy to you as you persevere, the perseverance of the saints. I know so many people, you probably do too, who have tried to live the Christian life without a safety net, right? Who for whatever reason, whatever sin, they try to live their Christian life and on any given day and or due to some man-made tradition or from some wrong teaching, they were told if they did certain things, said certain things, they would lose their salvation or never even have a chance to get it, to receive the forgiveness of Christ. And we all know people like that. I think that's tragic. We've had people come into our church like that years ago. They didn't have the assurance of salvation, and they learned through the Bible how you can have that. I mean, there's lots of people out there, not only professing believers, but faith-possessing believers that lack joy because they're always walking on eggshells. They're always worried any moment they might lose their salvation. And then what are they going to do to get it back? They're just doubting, right? What they have to keep in mind is we're saints under construction, but the project's going to get built. There's an end to the project. And according to the Bible, it's a really good project. And we have the master builder who's going to pull it off. I told you last week, every Christian is a saint. That's scriptural. And our life here is a journey. And God is building us a little bit day by day like a potter and the clay. Very familiar biblical analogy. Why? To look more like Jesus. And our friend and brother, the Apostle Paul, he's got a word for us today to help us see and find joy in our personal construction project. Perseverance of the saints. It's not only promised to us, folks, but the example of the Philippian churches 
It was proclaimed to them by Paul as a guarantee, a guarantee with their faithfulness. And so for that word, we're returning to Paul from his imprisonment in Rome. This is not long before the execution toward the end of his life, by the way, when he's writing this letter. It's warm. It's encouraging. It's full of blessings and exhortations and edification or teaching. He's signing off to these dear brothers and sisters, whether they know it or not, for good. He loved them very much. He had planted that church about a decade before. And he began, as we saw last week, with a greeting that just overflowed with warm memories of their time together, affection for that church, and just a joy that welled up inside of him as he prayed for them, while imprisoned, mind you, always doing that, constantly, and with thanksgiving. And it's that heart of joy from the Holy Spirit that moved him to pray like this and to feel that joy in the process. And remember, we defined what the Christian's joy for you is. It's not the unredeemed world's sense of happiness, which is temporary. Ours is special, and it's spiritual, it's supernatural for those in Christ. Our joy is not dependent on what happens from day to day. In contrast, worldly happiness depends on what happens. And let me show you what that looks like. Acts chapter 16 is where this church was planted, and we have the account of it and how it happened, and um, I'll just give you a touch of it in terms of the experience with the Philippian jailer and Paul's Christian joy here. What happened was they're preaching the gospel, verse 23 says, and they had inflicted the people in the community at Philippi many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. And the them is Paul and Silas. Having received this order, he, the guard, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. They couldn't move much, chained to a jailer. And about midnight, listen to this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's what Christian joy looks like. It's, it's inconscionable to somebody that's not a Christian. Okay, I'm in a jail. I'm tied up to guards. I've been beaten and flogged, and I'm singing songs. What is that? Forget the miracle that followed this even. The salvation of the jailer, his family, that came from it. That's a real familiar story. What's not so familiar and appreciated is what I'm getting at here, the joy in their hearts reflected in the fact they're singing hymns and songs and prayed while chained in heavy chains to a guard, how many of us would do something like that? Would you even have a thought of singing in that moment of great pain, discomfort, and anxiety? And who would? Paul and Silas did. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and their hearts were filled with joy. Our definition, the Bible's definition of Christian joy is a deep down, soul-satisfying, contented feeling that only a true born-again Christian can have regardless of their circumstances. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Christian joy is a deep down, 
soul-satisfying, contented feeling that only a true born-again Christian can have regardless of circumstances. And we're going to see that kind of joy promised and proclaimed right here. Let's look at how it's promised again in verse 6 of our text. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's not doubting. He's sure this is going to happen. It's not a guess. It's not a throwaway little statement. He's making an argument for the assurance of salvation from an attitude of confidence. He is literally, according to the Greek language, he is certain, and the tense there, the word is continual. He's always certain, always confident that this is going to happen. Now, what's going to happen? Well, a modern translation, the New Living puts it, that the Lord will continue his work until it is finally finished. And that statement makes total sense only insofar as you acknowledge God and Christ is who he is and what he does. As we, as we said last time, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12. Paul knew that. He's got no doubts that the Lord is going to finish this construction project in all of his saints. Whatever he starts, he ends, including our walk from him. The psalmist knew this. This is paralleled way back in Psalm 138.8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. He won't. He says in our text that God will bring it to completion. From the original language, you'll cross the finish line. The goal will be attained. And more directly in chapter 2, very familiar text, it's echoed again, even in a more profound way in some ways. Chapter 2, the middle of verse 12 into 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's doing the work? We'll deal with that in due time. But get this, people. That work in you to bring you and me to greater Christ-likeness, it's a joint venture. You can see that already. Now, I have to tell you, this doesn't happen without discipline and without some pain sometimes. The, the gym slogan is true. No pain, no gain. That is very true of the Christian life. Paul, in this letter, in the midst of suffering and trials, says to live is Christ and to die is what? Mm -hmm. He said it's far better to be with Christ. Paul could have said, very simply, Caesar, you want to lock me up and then kill me for spreading the gospel? Which is what's going to happen to him, by the way, soon after this letter. And he's just saying, bring it on. Kill me. Because as good as it is here with Christ, it is far better when I get more of him even there. So Caesar, bring it on. Bring on. Show me what you got. And this is not just a Pauline thing. I want you to listen to the Apostle Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. When Peter is writing to the persecuted, dispersed churches of the first century for the faith, and he's talking to born-again believers with hope. And he says in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6, In this you rejoice. What? Though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. Did you hear that? When you're being grieved by various trials, rejoice. How's that? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And listen to this. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's an amazing text. That's amazing. And did you hear the influence that Paul seems to have had on Peter when he wrote that? That sounds a lot like Paul. And what they're saying in the same thing, in other words, is that there's joy in Christ, in the Christian's heart, as you're going through and have gone through and persevered in the faith with testing, trials, and tribulation. And why is that? Why would that be a joyful thing? One of the reasons why is because your salvation is confirmed before your very eyes. Some people think that God puts us through stuff so then God can know for sure, oh, okay, he's one of mine, she's one of mine. God's sovereign. He saved you. He knows who are his. The trials are not for him. They're for you. They're for you. When you get through it, you say, hallelujah, God, I'm the real deal. God pulled me through it, you see. And then I'll give Paul another taste here, Romans 5, so you can see in another text what he says about this and what these trials bring to us. Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Or perseverance. And endurance, there's like a chain here, endurance produces character and integrity. Character produces hope. The hope of the gospel. The hope of heaven, you see. And guess what? James has got something to say about this too. You can't leave out James. James chapter 1, right? Verse 2. Check this out, bro. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, meet trials of various kinds. What? Various trials. Joy. Happy. Good. How do you do that? Why? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's another word for endurance or perseverance. Verse 4, and let, said, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning spiritual maturity. Um, here's breaking news. And this is partly why we're in this book in Philippians, the book of joy. If you do not suffer, you will not grow in faith. It's axiomatic. It has to happen. Christians don't grow unless they suffer. And if you don't like that particularly, you just got to deal with it because that's how it works because God made us and knows us and knows what we need to get from point A to point B. You were meant, you were called by God. It is his will for you and me to suffer. Not only to glorify him in that, but to be sanctified. Big word, it just means to be made holy or set apart. 
different in the world, growing in the likeness of Jesus while you're here having your faith confirmed, and that's giving you greater assurance of your salvation. You see all the things that it accomplishes in you? And as we've learned in our just-concluded series from the Gospel of Mark, we call the suffering servant, has anyone ever suffered more than our Lord? And he's our example. And Paul's going to tell us later in this letter, that's the deal. Jesus saved and rescued you from eternal death to give you eternal life, but that means more of Christ. It means life in Christ in this sin-cursed world, and now that means in a package deal, pain and suffering. But there is a purpose. The idea is that you look more like Jesus in that suffering. So get this, so lost people see more of Jesus in you in this messed up world, and they say, why are you like that? Why are you at peace? Why do you have joy? That was what the Philippian jailers said to Paul and Silas when they were singing Chained to the Guard. What brings out a song in you right now? Don't you know we're in jail? We just beat you up and can kill you. And they're singing. That's how this works. In this life, we are saints under construction. And when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, we begin this lifelong process of spiritual growth and there are bumps in that road. Sometimes there are big mama hills. The Holy Spirit works in us in all this to remove us from selfishness, for instance. You're going to see that in chapter 2. To renew our thinking, Romans 12. And to develop qualities in us that are going to make you look more and more Christ-like. All right? But this work of sanctification is done. Here's the hook. When Christ comes back, second coming, judgment time, because he's going to bring us back, we're going to meet him in the air in glorified resurrection bodies. And at that point, that moment in time, we will be perfected, we will be mature, we're going to be as Christ-like as we're ever going to be. That's a promise from God. And that good work leading up to that, he's been doing throughout our Christian life. It's going to be completed when he comes back. That's when the construction project is done. The certificate of occupancy is issued. So we, we, we pray and we do, we strive and thrive to walk like Christ in holiness here and now because we are to live like the people that we are. New creatures in Christ, right? Romans 8 tells us we were elected and saved and justified to be conformed like the pot and the clay, the potter and the clay, to be molded into the image of of Christ. That's the big deal there. That's our calling here and now. And Paul knows and he tells the Philippians that this sanctification, growing in holiness, and a joy that comes with us, it's a project in process. Okay? Back in Philippians 1, verse 25, he puts it this way. I know that I will remain and continue with you all, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. So you're still going to sin, Christian. Still going to struggle with the habitual sins of life. And if you linger in your sins, he'll get your attention because he disciplines those he loves, right? That doesn't mean he's going to let you go. It just need, means we need to be patient. We need to persevere and remember to tell ourselves in moments like that, God loves me, Christ died for me, and he's not through with me yet. That truth should produce repentance 
and joy in your heart. He wants us to feel joy in the process. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians. His goal was to see Christians live lives of joy. He knew that sanctification would lead to contribute to their joy. And that keeps us going towards the finish line of life, that goal, until Jesus returns and he takes us across the line. In fact, Paul encouraged the Thessalonian church at the closing of his first letter to them. Same idea, guarantee, promise that their sanctification was going to be complete by the time that Jesus came back. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, he writes, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He'll do it, and you'll do it. How does that work out? I don't know. I'm not God. But we're going to talk about that more when we get to Philippians 2. It's part of the paradox of our faith. Paradox. What is a paradox? A paradox is something that appears or sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Because when you dig deeper and investigate it, there's no contradiction. So Paul is saying, listen, if you're the real deal, if you are a true disciple or follower of Jesus... The Spirit of Christ is going to change you little by little into a little Christ. Because He's going to change your heart, your desire, your will, your plans, your purposes. They become His. And you're going to participate with Him in this walk of holiness. That's exactly a prophetic promise, by the way, from the New Covenant. I want you to see a New Covenant passage on this from Ezekiel of all places. And we quote this often or paraphrase it. You're going to see what I mean. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. That prophet said this, quoting God, about the new covenant to come. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he means is a stone is inanimate. It's dead. It's an object. That's how your heart is without Jesus. He's going to change that, give you life. And then he says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And and did you notice the affirmatives there are from God? It's, I will, I will, not your will, his will. He says, I will. And let's not leave the Apostle John out of this equation. 1 John 3, 2. Great, great verse. Beloved, he writes to the church, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. He's talking construction project there. We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he comes, we'll be like him. The saints' construction project is done. So we have hope in that. We look forward to that with great anticipation. That's what our hope is. So at this point in the text here, look, go back to Philippians 1. Paul goes back to his prayer of thanksgiving with joy 
for his relationship with the Philippian church. It's proclaimed in verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So this perseverance is there. It's proclaimed by Paul and he wants to honor this church. That's what Paul's doing in this verse. Like a modern paraphrase would say, quote Paul is saying, you have a special place in my heart. And this is what it means to really, when you hear the phrase, I can relate to you. I can relate. Because Paul's love and joy for this church, that informs, energizes his prayers for them, is because in large part, listen, they partnered together with him in the ministry of the gospel. Verse 5 said the same thing we saw last time. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. He honors them because they're in partnership. To partake from the original Greek language is just to share something, to be in companionship with another person. And he alludes to that in chapter 4 when he remembers about that gift he received from their courier, Paphroditus, while he was in chains, as he would say. Folks, here's a heads up. When a fellow member of this church, a Christian, does something nice for you, and they serve you out of a heart and love and service, I know we're like really Christian and our first thing is to say, oh, praise God. And that's good. But you might want to also say, thank you. Thank you, too, for what you've done for me. That's okay. That's right. Because that's what Paul's doing here. He's giving honor to those who deserve honor. That's biblical. This was a church that was strong in ministry, and Paul could appreciate that and wanted to acknowledge that publicly. They didn't just come as a church to be fed here and just look to see what they could get out of the fellowship and congregating and then take off. They were about serving and about giving big time this church. Paul bragged about the giving of all the Macedonian churches. He used peer pressure, talking about Philippi, when he called on the Corinthians to help with a special offering to the Jews that were suffering in Jerusalem. And this is really interesting. Not only is Paul right and confident to feel this way about the Philippians and share his joy with them, he not only appreciates their giving, but their faithfulness because he proclaims and honors them for their loyalty to the truth and the gospel. They were defenders of the truth. Defense. That comes from that Greek word you've heard, apologia. Apologia is where we get the word, the idea apologetics from. It is to defend. And the confirmation of the gospel just means standing strong for the truth. If you know me, I'm big on this, of course. The defense of the gospel and the truth made by others that I was exposed to, influenced by, led me to saving faith in Christ many, many years ago and to preach the Bible and teach and to make disciples in a similar way. I think this is an important thing. People in this world need to see us and proclaim why we believe as well as what we believe. Very simple to say, I believe Jesus is God. And that's an important doctrine. Why do you believe that, Christian? Humana, 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 humana. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to help anybody. Right? Why do you believe that? Uh, Pastor Bernie, Pastor George preached about that. Oh, good. Okay, I'm in. That's not going to do it. 
You have to do what 1 Peter 3.15 says. You have to have a reason for the hope that lies within you and you present it with gentleness and respect. That's a verse that's key for understanding apologetics. So Paul appreciated, he honored Philippi for their partnership in advancing the gospel, which we're going to talk about more in this chapter as we go on. Listen, we the leaders at CCC, I'm going to tell you something. The church leaders anywhere. We need the partnership and the participation from our church people in making disciples. We can't do it all ourselves. I mean, this may surprise some of you. Hopefully not. But the mission of our church, which is to make, mature, and multiply disciples, that wasn't created for me, George, and Robert. That's for all of us. Everyone in this room. We are all collectively to partner in fulfilling that Great Commission mission. In our members meeting we had last week, we talked about that and how essential it is for us to think about and treat, for instance, our midweek community groups where big-time discipleship happens. You treat it like today, Sunday worship. We need to be together, not forsaking the assembling or the gathering of ourselves at Hebrews 10. That word wasn't given to say, just assemble and gather on Sunday, and then we'll see you when we see you. No. We are to see each other as much as we can to exhort one another, build up one another, to love and good works. That's what that Hebrews text means. And for us, it's to take the message of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ to the street, to our community, our cities. We have to be intentional about that. You've got to show and share Christ in our testimony as witnesses, and some of you do that. Remember, we're ambassadors of Christ, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians. We, we represent him in this lost world. It starts in your home with your families, and then it graduates to your neighborhood and school and workplace and so forth. We want people, okay, we want people starting with ourselves here. This is our discipleship process to be Christ-conscious, Christ-committed, and Christ-contagious. We want to be more Christ-contagious than COVID was, okay? That's how our construction project works at CCC. And we do that in three ways. How do we do that? In the Sunday congregation, our community groups, and then, Lord willing, in smaller core groups. That's the paradigm. That's the process we're committed to here as a church body. And speaking for myself, I'll tell you what, in the Pauline role, I praise the Lord, I appreciate, I thank and honor you all that are striving to grow in Christ, that are working alongside us to really finish the job. That brings us joy, brings me joy. And we appreciate that, that you're being obedient to the Lord, that you invite people, as some of you have done even today, that have come to check out our church as guests. You came through the front door. Some prefer to come in through the back door. That's what we try to call our midweek meetings in homes or wherever they happen to be held, our shepherd groups. So we need your help to do that. Look, I, I, this is something you may not think about often. But in my, in my ministry work, in this job, I'm constantly with or surrounded by Christians. So I honestly don't get nearly as many evangelistic, apologetic opportunities to witness as you all do. I really wish I did. Most of my opportunities come here on Sunday 
or in a midweek meeting, I'm preaching and teaching the Bible, and there may be some lost, and the gospel goes out, and that's, that's wonderful. That brings me joy. I love that. But this is what I need you to be constantly mindful of in inviting guests. So that's a help to us. But, you know, some of you tell me, you've told me before you've come up to me and you're working with people and in the community and you share your faith, you have conversations about the Lord and the gospel and truth and you tell me what people come back with and their questions and their comments and your struggles with defending the faith and what to say. And to be honest with you, I'm jealous. I don't get a chance to do that very often. I think my wife at work was telling me the other day, she's been sharing with a, a woman in her office and all the stuff that's going on there. And I'm like, why, why wasn't I there to get that question, man? I got this all lined up. I got this thing backwards and forwards. I got to get out more often, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm stuck in the study too long. I don't know. I really wish I could meet more unsaved people and share truth in Christ with them. I really do. But as a pastor, it's kind of hard. And all that is to say, this is why Paul's saying, I love you guys, church at Philippi, because we're partnering together in this thing. That's what he's honoring the Philippians for. And my prayerful desire really is that CCC, this church, is going to look a bit more like the church at Philippi every day and the joy that comes with it. As he says in the middle of verse 7, you're partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To do that, you've got to know why you believe what you believe. And we can help you with that, okay? You don't have to be a professional apologist to do this because disciple-making is for all disciples. We're saints under construction, okay? So we just got to pick up our bricks take our place on the wall. Remember the Jews rebuilt the city of Jerusalem after their captivity when they came back, and it was a heavy-duty building project. And they didn't hire out a company. There was no general contractor. The people, the women, the men, the children, they all took their place on the wall and rebuilt that city, starting with the walls. God will take care of the rest. God will finish the project. Amen? So as I close, I'm going to again remind you of a young teenage girl at the time who was named Johnny Erickson Tata. You know the story, many of you. She broke her neck in a diving accident. She thought it was her last step on her road to life. In reality, that was just the first step on a trek, a life of faithfulness that she could not have imagined was going to happen at that time. From her wheelchair, the quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata has touched millions of people through a life of writing books, doing art, music, advocacy for the disabled. And her, I, I know her story is more dramatic than anything most of us will ever experience, but the depth of her suffering just really serves to make the point all more effectively that the day we think life is ended for us is the day God's plans and purposes go next level. He shifts gears because he decides when the project is over. He completes the project, okay? That's why these things that happen in your life, this accident that happened here, there, these things that are random, seemingly out of control, uh, whether it be an illness, natural cataclysmic event, tragedies, um, 
they happen with no more meaning than a ball that drops randomly in a lotto machine? No, that's not, that's not how God works. Nothing, nothing ever happens by coincidence or is random. Nothing. You can eliminate those words from your vocabulary. I've been on that hobby you know, horse before. I tell you, I don't wish people luck. It's a waste of time. Why? What does luck do? Luck has no force. Luck means nothing. It's a way of referring to random odds. I wish you nothing. That's what you say when you wish people luck. Because it can't create. It can't do anything. God does. Romans 8.28. No wonder it's such a favorite Bible verse for millions, including myself. God works. Who works? God works all things together for good that those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the greatest news I've ever heard. I, I, I don't think you can beat that. But it's a conditional promise for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you're not a Christian, I've got to tell you today, all things aren't working for your good. Life may not work out. It may not be a good ending for you. If you're a, if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you get a good ending. It's promised. It's guaranteed because he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know God counts every sparrow that falls? He knows every hair on your head. Even like Brother George, who ain't got none right now. He knows every hair in that beard. I mean, that's a for sure. The child of God should rest in the acknowledgement that our Father in heaven has a plan, he's never late with it, and that should bring you insurmountable joy. Just that fact alone. He is going to finish the saints' construction. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us right with you to those that Repent and believe with those who commit to turning from their old sin and selfishness and turn to you and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins to Jesus, the God-man in the flesh. We're so thankful, Lord, for that gospel, but we're thankful for our sanctifying faith that you give us, that you come alongside and work with us, and you will bring our faith to completion in this world when our Lord Jesus comes back, Lord God. So we are to work, do what we do, what you've called us to do. We're empowered by the Spirit to do it. And we take joy, deep soul-satisfying contentment in the fact that you're always with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we know that greater is he that is in us than he, the enemy, who is in the world. And so I close with this prayer from Jude. And that wonderful little letter, Lord, we praise you, God, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. And all God's people said... 
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 